We have been going through a red letter study for the last few weeks here. Actually, for the last few months here. Uh, the red letter study is a study of Jesus' words that are sometimes printed in red in uh, certain editions of the New Testament. And so we're just studying Jesus' words, but we're going to do it from a first century Aramaic point of view as much as we possible, possibly can. We want to step into the sandals of his first hearers and understand his words from that point of view because that's the way we're going to get closest to Jesus' intent. What I want to talk about this morning, coming right up in the next, uh, the next passage from last week, is what I consider maybe one of the most egregiously misinterpreted passages in the New Testament. And it's not only because the, the, I believe the meaning has been misinterpreted by and large, but also its effects on real life and its effects on people in their real lives. Because once the church uses scripture to create church law, to, to use this to um, hold people to a certain way of living or a standard, if we've misinterpreted at the beginning, it causes no end of troubles. And I believe that this passage has done exactly that. Backing up just a little bit, did you know that the, uh, that the Muslims call Christians and Jews people of the book? Have you heard that one before? Akhil al-Kitab is what they say. People of the book goes all the way back to the Quran in the 8th century. The idea here is, is that they looked at the other two Abrahamic religions as not heathens or pagans, as the other ones were, but they called them people of the book because they were relying on the guidance of previous revelation in the form of scripture. And so that differentiated us from other unbelievers from their point of view. But I think it's a really apt phrase, and some Christians through the millennia have also adopted it for themselves because of the, the place that we put scripture in our faith lives. I mean, scripture is everything. Scripture is the standard to which we hold ourselves. And so when you think about it, there is a huge part that scripture plays in the church and in church life and in the way that we interpret our faith lives. And this is so important for us to understand because if you think about all the fights that we have from Christian to Christian, all the divisions, all the excommunications that have ever taken place throughout history, it's going to be fighting over the book that is really at heart because our theology and our doctrine comes from the book. And so really what we're fighting over is who's got the right interpretation of these scriptures? Who's got the right interpretation of the book? And I got to tell you, for 2,000 years and counting, there has never been agreement, ever. Sometimes you say, oh, yeah, the first century church, they were all of one accord. You know, going back to that story in Acts where everyone was in the upper room and all of one accord. There was never a time, even while Jesus was alive, that the church was all in one accord. There were always dissenting voices. There were always people who were interpreting things differently when it was still an oral tradition or when that tradition started being writing, gotten written down in the mid-first century. There's never been agreement. Just read the letters of Paul. It is all about the disagreements that he's trying to stamp out and stamp down, trying to create some sort of orthodoxy. And it wasn't until Christianity got the boost from Roman power and became allied with Rome and allied with the Roman army that they could force orthodoxy on the people. But that was 500 years in the making. And so here we are, 
still fighting over the book. Here we are still trying to figure out what is the correct interpretation? How do we know that we are reading this ancient document rightly? How do we know for sure what the book is saying? I've come up with three guidelines that I want to lay on you right now. And these are just mine, so you can take them for what they're worth. But they also comport with much of what I've read out there, what many scholars are looking at, especially scholars more recently. As we're looking at what does this ancient document have to tell us? How can it really guide us? Because some of the things that we're seeing over the centuries of how this book has been used, how it's been taught, don't even make common sense. So what are we supposed to do with it? You know, the first guideline is, is that scripture or even Torah, law, is really instruction or guidance. It's not an absolute code. The Jews didn't understand their law, their Torah, as absolute code. They understood it as instruction or guidance. That's what the word means. And so it was supposed to be a pointer. It was supposed to point the way to an experience of the truth, point the way to God's presence. And in that experience, we would assimilate a truth. We would actually become that truth. It wasn't just about the code itself. And it's not going to be just about Scripture itself. When we elevate Scripture to that level of an absolute code, we've lost its meaning. We've lost its power in our lives. Because this kingdom that Jesus is talking about doesn't come from the outside in. It comes from the inside out. And we, when we are bumping up against and really experiencing God's presence with our presence, that's when the transformation begins to take place. Scripture absolutely guides us, funnels us, leads us, points us to those kinds of experiences, if we let it, if we aren't sitting back passively and just following rules. The second guideline is that these scriptures from 2,000 years ago, from, from 3,500 years ago, they weren't written to us. You could even say they weren't written for us, but, you know, we've sort of appropriated them. But they weren't written to us. They were written to their contemporaries. These men and women were writing for the people around them, for their generation. You know, a, a Hebrew prophet was only considered true if his or her predictions came true within the generation to which it was uttered. It was very much a nowness that was in, in understood in the scriptures. And so because they were written to someone else and we're sort of reading their mail, the onus is on us. The burden is on us to step into their shoes, to understand what they stood in their, understood in their context, their language, their culture, their worldview, their history, what did they understand? Because if we can get closer to that, then we can get closer to what the meaning was. To learn their idiomatic phrases, for instance. All that is on us, not on them. The scriptures won't just automatically speak to us. Any of you who have written, read the Bible know sometimes it's very difficult to parse. But if we can do this background detective work, things can change. The third guideline is, is that scripture should never violate common sense. It should never violate common decency. It should never violate love and compassion in the micro, in individual relationships. We've gone through micro and macro lately. 
Yes, love looks like justice in the macro to the group. That's the highest good, justice. But in the micro, individually, the highest good is mercy and compassion. Our scriptures should never violate that. And how many times, maybe in your experience, coming up through churches, have you seen that very violation taking place and the scripture used as a basis for that abuse? So these are the three guidelines that we use here. That first of all, scripture is not an absolute code, but a pointer to truth. Secondly, that it wasn't written to us. It's up to us to get into it under the hood and find out what the meaning really is, as much as we can reconstruct it. And third, that it should never violate common decency, common respect, and common sense. If we do all these things, if we approach Scripture this way, then it really can guide us to this experience of love, experience of truth that Jesus says will make us free. And I see Jesus doing exactly the same thing. This is what he's doing in all of his teaching, as recorded in the New Testament. He's using Scripture as a guide toward a way of living life that he calls the way, the Talmidi Urha, these followers of the way, to help people unlearn what they need to unlearn so that they can approach everything, their own religion, their faith, their lives, with beginner's mind as if they're seeing it for the first time because that's when the truth can really penetrate. And when Jesus used scripture, you know, he's not just limiting himself to scripture. He's also bringing in his own personal experience. As we've been talking about these six antitheses, we just did the first one last week, where he's saying, you've heard of old that, and he states the old, the law, the macro law. But I'm going to tell you this, and he is moving into a micro context. He's moving into his own experience. And even when he quotes the scripture, he, he uh, redacts it, doesn't he? I mean, Jesus really only quotes from about five or six books of what we call the Old Testament. The Jews called the Tanakh. It was their whole scripture the ones that comport with what he is trying to show about his father's love and his father's nature, that's what he quotes. The rest he leaves alone. So Jesus is picking and choosing. He's letting scripture show the way. And it's really important that we understand how Jesus teaches so that we can give ourselves permission to do exactly the same thing. The church has not given us permission to use scripture in this way, by and large. So we need to do that ourselves. For Jesus' own people, the people that he was talking to and teaching, he had to correct the misinterpretations that he found in his own culture, in his own faith, in his own tradition, so that people could then unlearn and move forward in the way that they needed to in order to get to this awareness, this presence and connection that he called kingdom. And so in Matthew 5, what he's doing is redefining the law. He's redefining what the law means, that it's not an absolute code, that we have to make this code shift from the macro law to micro love and compassion. So he's doing this over and over again. And as he does this, we talked about murder last week. As he does this, he's making this shift into the micro, but he's still using the metaphor of a legal guilt to try to describe the condition of a heart that has been disconnected. So when he talks about murder, he's talking about, hey, you know, you think you're safe because you haven't killed anyone yet, but I'm telling you that even if you're angry with someone in your heart, you're already guilty before the court. And if you say racha, 
you know, that's a verbal insult, then you're guilty before the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. There's no appeal from that court. And if you say Leila, which is an absolute insult that would have to, in an honor-shame society, incite violence, some sort of retribution, then you're guilty of the fiery hell, which is actually Gehenna, which we talked about is not a permanent place, but a place of purification. So he's making that shift back and forth using this metaphor. And notice the three stages that he shows there. First, there's the thought, then there's the word, and there's, then there's the incitement to some sort of deed or action. And so we've got this three-step escalation that he's taking us through, trying to get us to understand, stop the escalation, nip it in the bud. Because if you can do that, then you're never going to get to the place of actually breaking one of the written commands. But he's also saying that from the kingdom point of view, from a heart point of view, as soon as the heart has become disconnected, as soon as a relationship is compromised, you're already out of kingdom. You're already out of connection. The relationship is already, if not destroyed, at least compromised. And that's what the key is. The law is about keeping our relationships intact. The law is about keeping us in that kind of connection. It's not just about following rules. And so can we stop this escalation that is usually taking place? Martin Luther had a great saying. He said, I can't help it if a bird flies over my head, but I can keep it from making a nest in my hair. Can we stop those thoughts right where they start? Can we be aware enough to be able to make that change so that we don't go through those three steps of escalation, so that we don't harbor and play those tapes over and over again? This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. And now he moves from murder and anger to adultery. So let's take a look fun subjects, right? Murder, adultery. But at Matthew 5, starting at verse 27, look what Jesus says here. He says, you have heard it was said. Now, this is the formula he's going to use throughout all of these six examples that he's giving. You have heard that it was said, old, old law, right? Macro law. And then I'm going to tell you, and he's making the shift to the micro. You have heard it that was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, there's a tough standard. How are you going to deal with that one? I remember um, driving home, and there was one of those radio pastors who was talking about this very passage. And he said, you know, Christian men can't even watch TV commercials. They just can't watch them. Because he was taking this absolutely literally. You are already guilty of adultery if you're just watching TV commercials. But notice what Jesus is doing here. Does he mean this literally? That would violate common sense. Of course it's not the same thing. Murder and an angry thought in your heart, of course, is not the same thing. And adultery and seeing an attractive person is not going to be the same thing either. But he's making this shift, and he's doing this purposefully. People thought that if they just followed the macro law, put that fig leaf on, that they were safe with their God. Jesus said, you haven't even really begun yet. You're just at the very threshold of the door to move into the micro, where it's a law of the heart. The law is fulfilled in love and not in the following of the code. So keep your heart from becoming disconnected. Keep your relationships safe. This makes perfect common sense, of course. And of course, he's not meaning this literally. 
And so like murder, though, notice there are three stages to what he's talking about right in the next verse, starting at 29. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for the whole body to go into hell. And remember, hell is Gehenna. It's more like Catholic purgatory. He's not talking about a permanent place, but he's talking about you're going to be in need of some serious purification here, buddy. Now, Mark, at Mark 9, adds the foot. Not here in Matthew, but Mark has it in his version of the same passage. And so this completes the three stages in terms of the way Hebrews looked at covetousness. If you were going to covet something, what's the first thing that happens? Well, you see it and you want it, and then your foot takes, it to, takes you to it, and then your hand reaches for it. That was the way they looked at the three stages of covetousness. Jesus is pointing that out again. You know, if your eye is making you stumble, cut it out. Not literally, of course. We're not talking literally here. But this is where you become aware, and this is where you stop the escalation. If you're starting to walk toward it, stop there. If you're reaching for it, stop there. But as long as, you know, after a while, this train is leaving the station, and you're just on it. But Jesus is trying to get across this kind of escalation is exactly the same as the thought, the word, and the deed in terms of mercy and anger. But again, the law isn't fulfilled in the code. It's fulfilled in the heart, in love. And he's trying to make that so important to us, trying to get that across to us. To recognize that the disconnect is already there at those earliest stages when they're just a thought, just an emotion, just a drive in you. And now he's going to shift from adultery to divorce and remarriage, which really gets sticky. So starting at verse 31, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, adultery, makes her commit adultery, And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. How in the world are we supposed to understand that? Once again, are we supposed to try to understand that literally? That fails the common sense test as well, doesn't it? Really? Now, is this another metaphor that Jesus is giving us? What is going on here? Well, I can tell you that from the fall of the temple in 70 CE, 70 AD, the church has been interpreting this passage pretty much literally. If any of you grew up Catholic, you know how the Catholic Church feels about divorce, as if it doesn't exist, right? You have to get a marriage annulled if you ever have a divorce and you want to get remarried in the church. So it is not accepted because of this passage. And so for 2,000 years now, uh, I'd say 1,500 years at least, the church has been defining this literally and then making doctrine and church law on top of that understanding, that literal understanding. But Jesus, once again, he's making that shift from the macro to the micro. He's trying to make us understand that just because we're keeping the code of the law, what is the state of our hearts This is what really is important. But if you take a look at what Jesus is saying here, it looks like he's giving us only one ground for divorce, one legitimate ground for divorce, and that would be if our partner committed adultery. 
And if that hasn't happened and the divorce occurs, then if you remarry after that divorce, you are committing adultery because, in effect, your first marriage is still in effect. You know, I saw pastors as uh, 30 years ago as I was coming up in the church and and starting to do actual pastor training. I saw pastors send abused women back to the abuser within the marriage because of this passage, because that marriage couldn't be broken, because since adultery hadn't taken place, the marriage was still valid. And they would send these women back to that abuser. Now, I'm trying to process this, trying to understand how this can possibly be true. And it was spinning my head around, but I didn't have anything that I could really say about it. I wasn't schooled enough. I didn't know what was going on here. It wasn't passing my common sense test, but I didn't have the wherewithal or the permission to be able to do anything about it at the time. I saw pastors keeping toxic marriages together at all costs even when partners were unwilling or unable to be to just have normal kind of relationship under the same roof. And then, of course, I saw divorced people leaving the church because they were kind of persona non grata. They really didn't have a place to stand anymore. They didn't have a seat at the table. How could that be right? Don't the scriptures need to make common sense? Don't the scriptures need to be decent? Don't they need to follow at least the same kind of rules that we would follow in our own personal lives? How can they be so different from that? How can they violate the love and compassion and the mercy that we know that they also hold dear? Now, this became really personal for me and Marion because we both were married before we found each other. And then we went to this church together and after several years, when we wanted to be married, we go to our senior pastor and we asked him if he would marry us. And we were just floored when he said, no, he didn't think he could do that. Well, why not? Because we had been married before and he didn't think or know that we had biblical grounds for those divorces. And without that biblical grounds, we couldn't be married again or it would be adultery. And as I was a pastoral student at that time, they said an elder had to be the husband of just one wife, which they interpreted in a series rather than together because the polygamy was happening at that time. And so how do you interpret that particular verse, right? All of this just compounds. And so we were absolutely floored. We didn't know where we stood anymore in this church. How could they not marry us? Now, eventually they found a loophole for us that maybe we weren't really Christians at the time. And, uh, and so the first marriages were effectively annulled. You know, we, we, we took it because we were so in that community. We didn't want to leave. And yet, you know, it just felt so false. But this was the moment for me in that space when they first told us this. You know, Marion was trying to process on her own. I was trying to process. Marion processed more emotionally. Me, the way I am, I processed intellectually. You know, so I just dove into study. This was the beginning of my first steps away from the, the mainstream Christian fold because I had to find out what was going on here. If this was Christianity, I said, how can I be a Christian? And if this is what Jesus really taught, how in the world can I follow him? And so I dove into study. I just studied everything that I could find on Christian divorce and remarriage. I, I remember finding one book that had four different scholars bound within the same cover 
coming to four different conclusions, reading the same passages. And then that's when the light bulb went on over my head. And I realized, oh, biblical interpretation is an opinion. <laughs> Newsflash, growing up Catholic, there was no way that, you know, that was the church's domain. They told you what scripture meant, you know. But part of that didn't you understand. But suddenly I realized it's an opinion. Now it can be a very informed opinion. It can be an opinion that's well-reasoned and well-studied, but it's still an opinion. Because here's four scholars in the same book coming to different conclusions. And I was reading all this different stuff. This was the beginning of me finally being able to give myself permission to start treating Scripture more the way that it was written. Because the ancients who wrote the Scripture didn't treat it the way we have been treating the Scripture. They knew what it was that they were writing and to whom they were writing it. And so... Here was all this going on, and I'm realizing that in this church, divorce was the real unforgivable sin. How in the world do you come back from that? I remember our drummer at the time was a heroin addict who had been clean for, I don't know, what period of time. And so they would hold him up as, you know, this, this, this great example of what God can do, right? They would have him speak to the young people, um, you know, about the evils of addiction and so on. He was forgiven, but my divorce, Marion's divorce, not so much. None of this was making sense to me. So this is where I really had to start thinking like a detective. I had to start looking at everything that pertained to these scriptures. And what I realized that what was missing from the passage was just as important as what was there. And what was there had to be put into the context of what they meant to each other as they said these words to each other, as they asked these questions of each other, so that we could figure out really what was going on. Let me ask you a question. Is it lawful for someone under 21 to drink in the state of California? And you say no, because that's the law, right? But the question is, drink what? Water? See, by the way that I phrase the question, you automatically fill in alcoholic beverages because you know. Otherwise, the question makes absolutely no sense. It's nonsense. Without that qualifier in there, we don't say it because everybody knows it. This is essentially what's happening in this passage. There is something missing from this passage that everybody knows to the extent that you don't have to say it. As soon as the question was phrased the way it was, the people understood the meaning, the intent behind it, and the parameters within which Jesus would need to answer. So this is what's happening. The literal meaning without context can be disastrously wrong and then become abusive. So in the context of Jesus' sayings, we need to now go, this passage that we just read in Matthew 5 was just the, what, what do you call that, the soundbite just the, the headline of a much longer question and answer session between Jesus and the Pharisees that occurs in Matthew 19. So let's take a look at the expanded version so we can understand what's really going on here. At Matthew 19, starting at verse 3, some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? Now the actual translation for any reason is any matter. So that's there in the parentheses. We'll come back to that in a second, because that is what defines the nature of this question. That's the key piece right there. 
Now, in verse 4, Jesus answers and says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined, let no man separate. Okay, so notice, he's being asked a question that is legal and it is macro. He's being asked a very specific legal question. How does Jesus answer? Immediately he's making the shift back to the micro. This is what Jesus will always do. Every time that you engage with him, he is going to be funneling things back to the micro, to the heart, because this is the key. The kingdom is going to move from the inside out. It starts from a transformation of the heart. So he goes right back to the original intent of marriage. This is what it was supposed to look like. He's trying to bring these hard-hearted lawyers, basically, legalists in, in their religion, back to a place where their hearts are soft and they're understanding what the real intent is. But they're not going for it, are they? So they said to him, then why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now, this is a spin that they're putting on Deuteronomy 24 because Moses didn't allow divorce. It was already going on. What he did is he commanded them to get a certificate of divorce. He put a legal framework in place that was not there before, which was really an act of mercy to the women because previous to this law, all a man had to do in a marriage was just put a wife out. He didn't need a reason. He didn't need any kind of legal mechanism. He could just put her out. And a woman on her own would have no way to support herself. In that culture, there was nothing that she could do, save maybe prostitution. And since she was not clearly divorced from the man, what other man is going to want her? What other man is going to want to marry her if she's in that particular state? This was, this was just devastating to women if a man put his wife out in this way. Now what Moses is doing, he's putting in a legal framework. Now the man just can't put her out for no reason. He has to show cause. And he has to go through the process of actually going to the elders and getting a get. They called it a get. Get that certificate of divorce. Once the woman had that certificate, that allowed her to remarry, legally remarry. Now she had the ability to get back into a family situation where she could survive. Not only that, it took time to get that certificate. It slowed things down. It had to be granted. Once it was granted, then if that woman remarried, she could never go back to her original husband, no matter how much he might want her back. So what did that do? That caused him to think twice. You know, is this just a passing <laughs> frustration I have with this woman? You know, because if she goes and she remarries, I could never get her back, even if I realize I still love her. It caused him to think twice. It caused him to take a breath. It caused everybody to just take some time. It was really a much better thing than what had existed before. But they're spinning it this other way. Now Jesus sees through all of this, and he says to them, why did Moses do this? Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. 
And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality, okay, usually translated uh, adultery, but the way it's actually phrased in the, in the passage, the original language, is a matter of indecency and marries another woman, commits adultery. Okay, on the face of it, it looks like Jesus is saying this is only one ground for divorce. Same thing he said in Matthew 5, and that's going to be adultery. But we're going to have to take another step back here because the Old Testament allows five grounds for divorce, and everybody knew this. This was, this was not something that was culturally unheard of. I mean, what Jesus is saying here would make no sense at all because they knew that there were five grounds for divorce. Now, one of them was this matter of indecency at Deuteronomy 24. But, ervat davar in, in Hebrew literally means a matter of indecency. But what was that indecency? The ervat was probably not adultery. Why? Because adultery, if proven, was punishable by death not divorce. Someone would be taken out and stoned if they were caught and proven to be adulterous. If adultery was suspected but not proven, then they had this weird ritual, because it was always focused on the woman, right? They had this weird ritual called the bitter waters where basically the woman was given a poison and if she died, she was guilty. And if she lived, she was not. <laughs> nice, huh? But it wasn't a matter of divorce. So divorce, or, or the, the ervat devar, the matter of indecency, the indecency was anything that shamed the family. And remember, in an honor-shame fam- uh, society, everything was about honor. So if she did something that shamed the family, did something that was indecent, or something that was, that was so disgusting or heinous, then that was the cause that the man could show for the divorce. But it probably wasn't adultery. Then there was the neglect of food, clothing, and love. Basic necessities of life. If the husband or if the wife wasn't providing these things, wasn't taking care of the home, wasn't providing love, both physical and emotional, that was another cause for divorce. And finally, the last one, the fifth one, was infertility. You know, and you might say, well, how do you know the, it's the woman's fault? <laughs> you know, couldn't it be the man's fault? Yeah, that's true. But in a polygamous society, you know, if some women are having children and some are not, well, then you can say, okay, it's not the man's fault. It's, it's such a different culture, and it's hard for us to think through all of this. But there were five grounds for divorce, and everybody knew these. So what is the Pharisees, what are the Pharisees asking Jesus? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife if she has this matter of, for any matter? Okay. Is it lawful for men to divorce his wife for any matter? What they're doing is they're stepping into a multi-generational debate that has been going on for the past 75 years or so before Jesus comes on the scene. And it was between two pharisaical schools. One was the school of, of Hillel, Bet Hillel. The other was the school of Shammai, Bet Shammai. And what they were doing is they were looking at this Irvat Devar. They were looking at Deuteronomy 24 and trying to decide what was this matter of indecency. So the way that Shammai looked at it, it was one ground for divorce. It was if the woman committed some sort of shameful act that harmed the family. That was grounds for divorce. What Hillel did was to separate the two and say it was for indecency but it was also for any matter. So he said there were actually two grounds in that one phrase. 
What does that do? If you say that you can get a divorce for any matter at all, you know, the shorthand was if she spoils my dinner, I can get a certificate of divorce. So now we have no-fault divorce effectively in first century Judea if you go to a Hillelite judge. And so if you already found the next young thing that you want and you want to put away the wife of your youth, you just go to a Hillelite judge and you're going to get your divorce because it's for any matter. It was basically legalized adultery that was going on. What the Pharisees are asking Jesus is to side with one school or the other. Is it lawful for the man to divorce for any matter? Or does he need an actual cause, a matter of indecency that has really harmed him or harmed the family? Now, what does Jesus do when he's presented with that? Everybody knows what the, what the question means. Everybody knows this. he's going to have to sit on one side or another of this pharisaical debate. He goes right back to the micro and says, look it, you're missing the point here. This is what marriage is supposed to be about in your heart. But then when he's pushed to it, then he comes back and just says, okay, yeah, I side with Shammai because obviously that's what really makes sense. And then if you push that to the next level, at Luke 16, verse 18, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. And that, again, doesn't pass the common sense test until you realize that what's really going on here, if you look at the language itself, both in the Greek and in the Aramaic, they are linked in such a way. You know, the, the present tense of, of Luke and the, the subjunctive mood of Mark, which is a parallel a chapter, and then in the Aramaic as well, the cause and the effect are linked together. There is an implied intention. There is an implied purpose to the action. They're not just completely separate. And so the best way to translate this is whoever divorces his wife in order to marry another commits adultery. Well, that makes perfect sense because in your heart, you've already purposed to do what you're going to do. Now you're just going to go out and find the the legal fig leaf to be able to save face as you do it. This is what Jesus is really saying. And when we put it back into context, it makes perfect sense, perfect common sense. Using a legal fig leaf to simply cover over your intent, it'll work in the macro law. You will be found not guilty. But in the micro, in kingdom, in the mercy, compassion, and love that we're supposed to be living, you are not innocent. That disconnected heart, that destroyed relationship is what is really at issue here. And we all know this. We understand this. This is basic common sense and common decency. And Jesus always makes perfect common sense when we put him back into context. And so marriage, like law, is not an absolute code. It's a means of perfecting relationship. Easterners, especially ancient Easterners, understood marriage as a place where we learn how to love. Not like in the West, where we have romantic love, and we think if we bring enough of that, of that love, you complete me kind of love, then that's a push that's going to take us through 30 or 40 years of marriage. It's too much friction for that. 
And so they understand marriage is a place where we learn how to love. It's where we learn how to perfect relationships. To reduce it just to a code is violating everything that it's about, all the intent that it's about. Marriage is supposed to be like salt that we learned earlier in this chapter. It's what preserves life. It's what fertilizes life. It's what gives life vitality. And it's like light. It creates order and harmony and fulfillment out of the chaos. Treating marriage or treating law as a mere contract kills all of this purpose and intent and takes us completely away from what Jesus is trying to show us. So for kingdom and kingdom living, we need to keep making this shift from the macro to the micro to seek and to live the purpose and intent of these laws, of these guidances, and not turn it into some kind of legal game. Because God's purpose is always joining together. But God joins together. No, let no person put asunder, right? God is always about joining things together, about making multiple things one. God's purpose is creating light and order and peace out of the chaos taking that disparate energy and making it one. And so if a marriage is chaotic, if a marriage is abusive, if a marriage is toxic, then, of course, divorce is allowed if there's nothing we can do to fix that. But it's allowed only in order to create a greater oneness, a greater unity later. It's always been quoted to me, God hates divorce. Yeah, so do I. I've been through it. Nobody hates it more than I do. But this idea here, to create greater oneness and greater unity, is always God's purpose. And if we have to step over a toxic and irreparable marriage, God is in that too. To be in God's kingdom is to learn to love the light to love harmony, to love peace, to love respect, to love love, right? And to be willing to do everything in our power to realize that light, even if we have to let it get darker before the dawn. Let's pray. Father, once again, these are difficult things. If there were easy answers to all of this, they would have been found by now. Help us to use your guidance like a weather vane, pointing us in the direction, always in the direction of greater unity, greater light, greater presence with you. Help us to step over the stumbling blocks of mere obedience mere rules. See them as the guidances that they are so that they also point us in your direction. That's what we want, Father. We want to stop following rules and write those rules on our heart. Become those rules. Become the mercy and compassion that will liberate us to live like the law, to live in the restriction of beautiful relationships that will only feel like freedom. Thank you, Father, for everything that you do for us. Never let us forget, we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.